Good evening, here it is, September 25th, 2021, starting the sixth night of Sukkot. The year is 5782, and we're going to do a second episode regarding Sukkot, because some very inciting, exciting insights came up today. We are here in the Sukkah. Anybody could come up at any time, so let's see if we can get our 30 minutes in uh, without that happening. But you just never know who might wander into the sukkah. So let's talk about for a minute the ushpizin. Ushpizin is an Aramaic term for the invited guests that come to the sukkah each day. We have one more. Some people believe that all seven come each day and one a different one is honored each day so who is in your sukkah is it your family is it your friends is it your neighbors is it strangers is it visitors from another town another country the sukkah is supposed to encompass all of us and it is the only festival where you can come in and celebrate into the dwelling the hut the booth with the mud on your shoes, the dirt on the soles of your of your footwear. So the you may be wondering if you've never heard about the Ushpizin, who are the Ushpizin? So we'll do a little review for those of you who know, maybe forgot, or maybe you've never heard of this before. The Ushpizin are in this order. Day one is Avraham, day two is Yitzhak, day three is Yaakov, day four is Moshe Rabbeinu, day five is Aharon, day six is Yosef, and day seven is David Melech, David Melech, Israel, Chai Chai Vikayam. So something fascinating that uh, was, uh, that came up today was that each of the Ush Pizin have a direct connection with Mashiach, with Yeshua. How so? So Avraham said that he in so John chapter eight verse forty eight. We'll start there, and Yeshua says. Then the Jews answered him and said to him, "Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon?" And Yeshua answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me, and I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Mostly assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Yehudim said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets say, and the and the prophets sorry, Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than Abraham Avinu, our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Yeshua answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who answers me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. 
Then the, then the Yehudim said to him, You are not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Yeshua said to, him, most, said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Yeshua hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Um, it's very fascinating. So in order for him to say, I am, he would have had to use the name of God that is not uttered by anyone except the high priest, the, the, the high priest on Yom Kippur, and only one time per year. Uh, there really is not a way to say, I am, in Hebrew. Uh, you can say, I was here, I am, I mean, I, am, I, I will be here, um, I'm in the process of doing something, but there's really not a way to say, I am, in Hebrew. Um, so, I believe that that is why they took up stones to throw at him, and it says he hid himself. I believe that supernaturally, he either became invisible, he teleported, Something happened miraculous that went against nature, and he went out of the temple. Maybe he levitated and flew out. I mean, who knows? And going through the midst of them. So either he was so strong that when he reappeared, he just pushed through them, or he hit himself and went through them. Maybe he phased through them, some sort of supernatural... He became to where his molecules could pass right through them. So, very fascinating. But, bring that brings us back to Abraham is the first Ush of the Ushpizin. So, uh, he has a direct connection to the to Yeshua. The second Ush, the second of the Ushpizin uh, would be Yitzchak. And he, uh, we see that he is... Uh, when Abraham saw Yeshua's day, well, when, when would that have been? That would have been during the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, which is in Genesis 22. So let's go there, Bereshit 22, and take a look at that. Genesis 22, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Hineni, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Yitzchak, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Moriah means teacher of God, or that which is shown, pointed out, or taught of yud of Adonai. And offer him there, Yitzchak, as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So most of you probably realize that Yitzchak, Isaac, was a type, a shadow, a picture a prophecy of the Messiah. So that's that's a very easy way to see that Yitzchak is um, connected to Yeshua. And it says, on the third day after they had traveled, it says, oh, and let me back up. His son Yitzchak, uh, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his son, young men with him and his son Yitzchak, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering. So wood, just like Yeshua's execution state or stake or cross, wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him on the third day like Yeshua he rose up on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar when you see the phrase Esa enai, uh, we see this in, in the Psalms uh, 
I raise up my eyes to the mountains. Where From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker, uh, the creator of heaven and earth. So the sages say that when you see this phrase, Esa and I, I raised, someone raised up their eyes, that they're seeing into the kingdom, they're seeing into the spirit, they're seeing supernaturally. So Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. I believe he saw into the kingdom, he saw the future that Isaac was going to need to be bound and uh, offered, but that God was going to resurrect him. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So the father and the son are isolated there alone. They're the only ones there, just like Yeshua was all alone with the father so that the father could forsake him. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Yitzchak, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Yitzchak said to his father, Abraham, Avi, my father, and he said, Hineni, Bani, here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, Adonai Yireh, Adonai, God will provide, or God will see for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So, this is the the connection Yitzchak has directly to Yeshua. Moving on to the third of the Ushpizin and his connection to the Messiah, that would be Yaakov. So, where do we see Yaakov have a direct connection with Yeshua? So, that would be when Jacob wrestles, Yaakov wrestles with the angel. And the next of the Ushpizin would be Moshe. So in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, we see that the Messiah, it says that, that a prophet shall arise just like Moses. So uh, that is Moses' connection to Yeshua, that he wa Yeshua was the prophet that arose, that Moshe was was a, a shadow, uh, foreshadowing. So then we have the fifth Ushpizin. Now this one is a little bit more difficult to connect to Yeshua. And I will uh, tell you, uh, I haven't quite figured out exactly how this one connects to Yeshua. But uh, I, I think I have the, the best way to connect them. So... Uh, Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, to step back for a second, the verse that Moshe, has, uh, that connects Moshe to Yeshua, among others, is, I will raise up, for Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. And that is connected, that is said to be a prophecy of Yeshua. So Aharon, now this one, this one is a little more subtle. I had to think about this one. So this one, let's go to Hebrews 4, chapter 14. Yehudim uh, Meshichim, Messianic Jews, 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great Kohen Hagadol who has ascended into heaven, Yeshua, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And Aharon was the first high priest, the first Kohen Hagadol. So that is what I came up with, what I felt like the Lord showed me. 
for Aharon's connection directly to Yeshua, to uh, Mashiach, uh, who is our ultimate invited guest. Uh, even though we don't dwell in the sukkah, uh, you know, we could say that he comes to bring eternity and renewal on day eight and uh, rejuvenation and a return to Gan Eden, a time that is beyond day seven. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, Yosef, now this one, um, I think, is uh, very obvious. So, I don't have a source for you. I am researching this right now. But the sages throughout Judaism say that Yosef, who is day six, he's our, uh, of the Ushpizim, he is day six. And um, he, the, the, one of the names for Yeshua, or, or in Judaism, for, for the Messiah, is uh, the the Messiah, uh, the son of Joseph, uh, Ben Yosef, the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah. And Yeshua in his first coming fulfilled that role, that he suffered. And just like Yosef, if you read the story of Yosef, or if you're familiar with it, then you know that in going down to the pit, that you know he was there for many years. And when he was raised up, it was as if he came up and was born again. He was shaved. He had his head uh, head shaved, and he was uh, given new clothes. And he came to serve the king as the king's agent. Had all the power. Sorry, of the yeah, the king of, of uh, Egypt. And uh, I that there is uh, in Psalm eighty one, we see that it talks. It connects Rosh Hashanah to Yosef's emergence from the dungeon from the prison and uh, also in tradition uh, it is said that Yosef came out of prison on Rosh Hashanah which um, is interesting because that's when many believers believe that Yeshua will return one year in the future so uh, moving on to day seven uh, so that's Yosef's sorry that, that's Yosef's connection to uh, Yeshua so the seventh one well, Yeshua in his second coming is known as Mashiach ben David. Uh, in Judaism, tradi you know, tradition and scripture talks about the Messiah being the son of David that will liberate Israel, free all of the Yehudim and all of the tribes, reunite them, bring them back together, that David's reign was prophetic of many things in the future that Yeshua will do, that the Mashiach ben David will do. And that's David's connection to Yeshua. So just something very interesting that uh, came up today that I thought I would share with you, friends. Now, something else that I'd like to share is about the Arba Minim, the four species. So Etrog, Lulav, Date, uh, sorry, Date is, is Lulav, uh, Myrtle, Hadassah, uh, Myrtle is Hadassah, um, Hadassah is Myrtle and Hebrew, and uh, the fourth one, Willow, uh, Arava in Hebrew. So, uh, this you may be familiar with, but I wanted to read from the Etzchayim commentary, which I am known and prone to do, about the four species. So, Leviticus 23, verse 40, the Hadar trees, in Hebrew, the tree from which the one of the four species comes from is called Hadar, literally beautiful trees. So this is Avayikra 23, verse 40. They symbolize the abundance of water and oases and the beauty of the land and the beauty of the land of Israel. 
In horticulture, there are no particular trees designated as hadar. Traditionally, the product of hadar trees has been taken to be the citron, or in Hebrew, etrog. You shall rejoice. Rejoicing is explicitly commanded in this chapter, only for the celebration of Sukkot. The pressing of the grapes had been completed, and there was no labor to be done until the beginnings, uh, beginning of the next agricultural cycle. The people had leisure time as well as ample food and wine with which to rejoice. So that is from Leviticus 23, verse 40. Verse 43, I made the Israelite people live in booths. Now this is funny and fascinating. According to Exodus, Shemot 12, verse 37, Sukkot, literally booths or huts, is the name of the first stop on the Exodus route from Mitzrayim. So now we have a precedence. We have a connection to a exit from exit from exile, the redemption from Egypt, and they are dwelling in Sukkot, which becomes uh, one of the themes of Sukkot is rejoicing and freedom from exile, a return to the great Sukkah of the Lord in the Messianic age. So on verse 40, we have some Midrash to talk about. The Midrash offers many interpretations of the symbolic meaning of the four species of Sukkot. So we're going to go back to the Arba Minim, the, the four species. The Lulav, which is the palm branch, represents the spine, erect but not rigid. The Myrtle, the eyes, the Myrtle, it looks like an eye if you hold up the leaf. The Willow looks like lips, and the Etrog is symbolic of the heart. They summon us to use all of our limbs and organs to rejoice before the Lord. Yet another Midrash compares the etrog, which tastes and smells good, to people who possess learning, so that corresponds to taste, and also who do, who do good deeds, that is smell. The lulav, which has taste but no fragrance, corresponds to people who have learning, Torah knowledge, but do not do good. They don't do gemilu chasadim. They don't do uh, good deeds, mitzvot. The myrtle, which has fragrance but no taste, represents people who do good. They do mitzvot. They do gemilu uh, hasadim, acts of, of mercy and loving kindness and random acts of kindness. But they lack learning. They don't study the Torah. And the willow, the sad willow by the water, the arava, with neither taste nor fragrance, corresponds to people who lack both learning Torah knowledge, learning Torah, and good deeds, the mitzvot, but who are still to be counted as members of the community in order for the community to be complete. So we see here that all the community has to come in from the person that does nothing and learns nothing to the person that learns all, a lot and does a lot and everybody in between. And we, it's interesting because it's, it's similar yet contrast with Pesach on the opposite end of the calendar exactly six months ago and six months from now. And, you know, we have the four sons. So you say, you know, one son, two son, three son, four son. You have, they have distinguishing different person, different personality traits, uh, you know, from the wise son all the way to the son who does not know how to ask. And, and, and you, you, there's a, distingu there's a dis uh, uh, distinct difference between um, Israel and the, and the Goyim. And you're supposed to include the stranger, but... 
you know, you, you know who the stranger is, and uh, it's Israel coming out of a, a pagan Gentile nation, but it's Sukkot, it's everyone, it's Israel and all of the nations. So you don't say, okay, you Mr. Etrog, you Mr. Lulav, you Miss Hadassah, you Miss, uh, Miss Araba. You, you don't do that. They're all together and they all count as one beautiful homage to the Lord when you shake them and wave them. So, a few other notes uh, in Vayikra 2340. The product of Hadar trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. This is the source for the commandment to take the citron, the etrog, with the branches of willow, arava, and myrtle, hadas, bound to a palm branch, lulav, to fulfill the mitzvah of waving the lulav during Sukkot. So it's always good to know uh, when we do commandments, where do they come from? Where in the scripture? And I wanted to talk a little bit about um, why this, why the, the myrtle, uh, the, so they correspond to parts of the body, right? So you have the, uh, lulav is said to represent the spine, the myrtle, the hadas, uh, looks like an eye, and the willow looks like lips, and the, like we said earlier, the etrog looks like the heart. So uh, let's look at what those represent in terms of taste and smell. So we have the etrog, which tastes good and smell good, smells good. And that is a person who has Torah deeds. So you can learn from that person. They, they can share with you. You can taste of their uh, good deeds and Torah knowledge. And uh, that was a little confusing. So let me say that again. So uh, Torah knowledge is uh, taste and mitzvot is uh, doing mitzvot is a is a good scent a good odor or not odor but a, a good smell so yeah i think i had it right then so you can taste of somebody's uh torah knowledge and you can smell their good deeds their good deeds um, make them uh, enjoyable to be around and and refresh you when you hear of someone doing gemilul chasadim, acts of mercy and loving kindness, right? And so uh, they share their heart with you and you can share your heart with them. Uh, that That's how I feel that corresponds to that organ of the body. Now the eye, now the person who has um, good deeds, like, like I think of Esther because her name was Hadassah, right? So she had good smell she had a pleasant scent um, because she did good deeds, but she didn't have Torah knowledge. So she didn't have taste, which is the myrtle is representative of those who, who smell good, who have good deeds, uh, but they don't have uh, taste because they don't have Torah knowledge. So I think it's the, the myrtle is represented by this person because with their eye, they need to start studying Torah. They need to start reading Torah. They need to go to class and learn and visualize and, and take in uh, the learning through their eyes. Uh, and then uh, let's talk about the, the spine, the lulav. So the lulav is spiny. Uh, interestingly enough, it's pointy. It can poke you. and it, But it's very flexible and flimsy. So... It is connected to the date palm, which has taste. So 
This is a person who has Torah knowledge, but they don't have good deeds. So what do you have to do to have good deeds? You have to get up. You have to stand erect. You have to walk. And for that, you need a spine. Also, just like the, the Lulav uh, branch that we use with the Arba Minim, uh, it, it's flexible. You have to be flexible in order to do Gemilu Hasadim. Uh, a friend just last night um, stopped, uh, told me they stopped their car. There were some people in need on the side of the road. It was dark. A man was waving his phone uh, with, the, with the flashlight on. And um, they didn't have flares. And my friend had flares. So he and his friends, they stopped. They, they were flexible enough to stop their schedule in midstream at 10 o'clock at night. And, and get out and help these folks and do Gemilul Hasadim for five minutes. And give them a couple of flares, light them for them, put them on the road to help keep them out of danger. So you have to be flexible, like the palm branch. To, and I believe that's, that's representative of people who, who need to be flexible um, and, and start practicing good deeds. Uh, and the spine helps you stand up erect, stand tall, reach toward the heavens, grow up in more ways than one, right? And attend to that deficiency and grow in your mitzvot. So the fourth one, the willow. So this person is, the willow represents the person who has no Torah knowledge and doesn't do good deeds, but they still belong in the sukkah. They're still part of Israel. They're still part of the Arba Minim. This is the person who needs to use their lips to ask. Then use their lips to talk. Use their lips to to sign up for classes, to say, teach me Torah, and to also speak to others and share kind words and, and to ask, what can I do? How can I volunteer? So this person can use their lips to start both to our knowledge and perform good deeds, to ask where they're needed and to spread the word of the gospel of Yeshua, for instance. All right, friends. So one last thing I wanted to discuss, which is going to make this a little bit longer, is the fascinating Hol HaMoed Haftarah. So what does Hol HaMoed mean, friends? Hol HaMoed means the secular um, days of the appointed time of the festival. So Hol HaMoed are the days between the two Shabbats, in this case of Sukkot, day one, and Shemini Atzeret, day eight, and it, it, at Pesach, uh, Chag Matzah, so Pesach is uh, from sunset until midnight of Nisan 14, going into Nisan 15 on the opposite side of the calendar in the spring, and then uh, at nightfall on Nisan 15, that's a Shabbaton, a day of complete and total rest, uh, Yom Tov, a holiday, uh, although, albeit with less restrictions than Shabbat, Halakhically, and then you have Chol Hamoed, which would be the days between day one of Chag Matzah, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Matzah, and day seven, which is also a Yom Tov, if you look to Vayikra, Leviticus 23. So, we're in Shabbat Chol Hamoed. This is a fascinating parasha. Let's take a look and read some commentary from the Etz Chaim. Uh, Humash, Humash, friends, is a Torah. It's a book of the five uh, books of Moses with all of the Torah parshiot, the Torah portions broken up. And the haftarah, haftarah means additional, the haftarah portions from the prophets. 
So before I get into the Haftarah that was for today, uh, the Intermediate Shabbat from Ezekiel 38, 18 through 39, 16, I just wanted to double back for a minute and explain why we use the word Ushpizin. Um, translated into English, the word Ushpizin loses some of its mystery and otherworldliness. Yet these guests are indeed quite mysterious, at least until we learn more about them, and otherworldly, at least until we make them part of our sukkah. We use the Aramaic term because our source of information from these supernatural guests is from the Zohar, the fundamental Kabbalistic work written in that mysterious, mystical, or supernatural language. Um, really, Kabbalah just means that which is received. There are parts of the Kabbalah that Messianics and Christians don't even want to talk about, and that's fine. But certain things that are called, quote-unquote, Kabbalistic, are put into layman's terms by the movement called Hasidut, which the Baal Shem Tov, I believe, um, created and, and founded in order to explain the deeper, um, more difficult understood, uh, more difficult to understand concepts, uh, to reveal the hidden behind uh, the the traditions and the halakha and unanswered questions within Judaism. Uh, so maybe we'll come up with a better uh, understanding of uh, the relationship between Kabbalah and Hasidut in another episode. But uh, basically Hasidut, which is uh, comes from the root Hesed, which is mercy or loving kindness, the, the movement of Hasidut is to bring the unrevealed and reveal it in layman's terms. And that was uh, very on a very basic level, the mission of the Baal Shem Tov. So uh, we'll have to do an episode on the Baal Shem Tov, who he was, and uh, what the movement is about. So uh, that is where Ushpizin comes from. It comes from the Zohar. So back to the Haftarah, the Shabbat, Hamoed, Sukkot. So the verses of this Haftarah in Ezekiel 38 to 39 are part of the extended doom prophecy against Gog of the land of Magog in Ezekiel 38-39. to These chapters follow oracles of hope for Israel's national restoration and purification, Ezekiel 36-37, and they precede the vision of the new temple and the priestly order for the new age to come in Ezekiel 40-48. through The temple vision is dated to 573 BCE, and the prophecies that precede it are undated, but presumably stem from around the same time. The doom prophecy of the Haftarah thus occupies a transitional position in Ezekiel's book, predicting the horrific punishment of Israel's enemies and the subsequent repurification of the land. The destruction of Gog came to symbolize the dreadful action Sorry, the dreadful doom of divine judgment, anticipating a feature of later Jewish imagination and literature known as apocalyptic, which purports to reveal what will happen in end of days. The Haftarah is a spectacle of disaster, wrought against enemies of Israel in hordes they swoop down on Israel from the Northlands, only to be destroyed in a surge of divine fury that shakes the earth with quakes, pestilence, and bloodshed. In the end, the Holy Land will be strewn with the bodies of the dead, and squadrons of Israelite searchers will scour the land to bury the slain. After seven months of searching and burying, 
the land shall be purified. The background of this war is unspecified, as in the selection of Gog out of the land of Magog for the role of enemy. The whole scene breathes a mythic atmosphere of ungodly doom, with episodes presented and repeated without concern for consequence or logic. All that we are told repeatedly is the divine motivation for the carnage. Two themes predominate. Predominate. The first theme is the manifestation of divine power, such that the nations will know the Lord. This is a signature feature of the prophet Ezekiel and his theology. It derives from earlier priestly traditions about the excessive and oppressive plagues inflicted on the Egyptians. There, the reason for the public displays is twofold. To convince the Israelites of God's might and his claim to be their deliverer. And to convince the Egyptians in Exodus, Shemot, chapter 7, verse 5, verse 17, and chapter 14, verse 4. In the book of Ezekiel, this acknowledgement formula is geared as well toward the public recognition of God by the nations, and especially to counteract negative assessments of his power. Against the background of God's apparent abandonment of the people of Israel, which led some to doubt his power, God makes his might known to all. The defamation, the defamation of God further resulted in desecration of his holy name, which is the second and interrelated theme of the Haftarah. A particularly poignant expression of this matter is dealt with expressly in a chapter that precedes the Haftarah, Ezekiel 36. Because of this desecration, God will act for the sake of my holy name, quote, unquote, and will, quote, sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, unquote. Chapter 36, verses 20 through 23 of Ezekiel. His history, sorry, history thus remains the specific site for the manifestation of God's glory. But human life recedes before this awesome act of self-indication. Let's look at the relation of the Haftarah to the calendar. The theme of renewal in time to come, featuring a divinely led battle, recurs in Haftarah readings for festival days. So that should bring, let me take a break for a second, that should bring our attention to why God creates these stations, these portals in time, these auspicious dates on the Hebrew calendar, on the Jewish, on the biblical calendar. Let's not call it just the Jewish calendar. It's the biblical calendar, friends. This is not a calendar that's just for Jews. It's for all people to observe. If you're believers in the scriptures, if you're a believer in the Bible as the word of the Lord. So, an image of destruction and transformation comparable to that found in this Haftarah is also found in the Haftarah for the first day of Sukkot, Zechariah 14, verse 1 through 21. Rashi on Ezekiel 38, verse 17 in this Haftarah identified the Gog prophecy with the war spoken of in Zechariah. Apparently, this identification flowed from the close liturgical association of these two Haftarot, and from the reference in Zechariah 14, verse 16, to a grand celebration of Sukkot in Jerusalem after the awesome days of battle. For generations, the Gog prophecy excited wild imagination, born of hope and a final judgment against the enemies of Israel. According to Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, the judgment against Gog would last 12 months, and that is from I'm going to spell it because I don't exactly know this source yet. M, as in Mike, E-D-U-Y, 2 verse 10. 
This judgment would also bring disaster on Israel, causing other calamities to fade by comparison. Tosefta Ber 1.13 It was commonly supposed that this war would be the final battle heralding the advent of the Messiah and a time when historical servitude would cease. Sifre Numbers 76 and the Babylonian Talmud Sanhedrin 97b. So, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read you from, I'm not going to read the whole uh, Haftarah portion, you can read that in your own uh, version of the Bible, but I am going to go ahead and read a few uh, comments on specific verses so that you'll have them when you do read this portion. So, in Ezekiel uh, 38, verse 18, the phrase, on that day, commentary says, a common prophetic formula that introduces oracles of times to come. This phrase is used repeatedly by Ezekiel in the Gog prophecy, see 38.10, verses, sorry, see, uh, chapter 38, verse 10, verse 14, verse 19, and chapter 39, verse 11. The name Gog in popular lore associated with Magog as two historical terrors, but it is clear from verse 2, Gog of the land of Magog, that Gog refers to a person or persons, and Magog is a geographic area. Verse 23, the phrase, Thus will I manifest my greatness and my holiness. This unique expression, Vahit Gadilti Vahit Kadishti, is followed shortly by mention of God's holy name. 39, verse 7. Both elements have entered Jewish worship through the Kadish prayer, Kaddish prayer, recited at various junctures in the service as well as by mourners. All forms of the Kaddish begin with the Aramaic words, Yitkadal v'yikadash shemei rabah. May his great name be exalted and sanctified. And the last commentary we have to wrap up this podcast is Ezekiel 39, verse 7. Never again will I let my holy name be profaned. The specter of Gentile desecrations of God's name, owing to Israelite suffering, seems on the surface to reflect divine absence or even impotence. See Ezekiel 20, verse 9. Chapter 14, sorry, Ezekiel 20, verse 9, verse 14, verse 22, and chapter 36, verse 20 through 23. Friends, thank you for being with us during this episode of Sukkot on In the Footsteps of the Messiah. We thank you. We bless you. We ask that you be blessed this week at this time, whenever you're listening to this, any time of the year. May you be blessed and encouraged. And as the Rav Shaul says that may you believe that Yeshua is Lord and God raised him from the dead so that you shall be saved. Romans 10 verses 8, 9, and 10. But what says it? The word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach, that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Yeshua and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto Yeshua salvation. God bless you. See you soon.